It is March 1st, 2012, and Kick-Ass Oregon History is one year old. And you may find yourself living in a shotgun shack, and you may find yourself in another part of the world. This is some Kick-Ass Oregon History. You may find yourself in a beautiful house with a beautiful wife. And you may ask yourself, well, how did I get here? Welcome to another installment of Kick-Ass Oregon History, a survey created by the geeked out history folks at ORHistory.com. We profile only the most badass, captivating Oregon stories. It's all Oregon sex, drugs, rock and roll, and earth-shattering, devastating destruction. Basically, the good stuff. This week, we look back at our first year, 23 action-packed episodes. been a year it has it's been um from march until march yes which is often called a year and it's i think 23 episodes or something like that like a pretty fucking phenomenal number of of bites on the interwebs almost two a month i was hoping that somehow we were going to be able to pull off an average of two a month but it didn't quite work but that's okay it's okay you know, 1. i can 1.79 isn't too bad yeah, yeah, I can I can handle that. I can exactly. totally handle that. So, you know, let's let's kind of revisit some of these things a little bit is kind of what I was thinking. And I okay. wanted to ask you the first question. I wanted to ask you, what is this kick-ass Oregon history and why in the hell have we been doing it for a year? I think that you and I have always had um an skewed intellectual take on the world. And um, I know that, uh, at least for myself, I've always appreciated being well-informed and being yeah. differently informed as well, so that I'm not just learning about what is the basic information, but going even deeper. And uh, when you presented this to me, I was excited about that. Yeah, yeah. I really like it because I think we've kind of taken history kind of out of the halls of academia and kind of thrust them into, I don't know, sassies or the dancing bear or something like that, you know. And <laughs> the other thing that I really like about it is I, is I hope people listen to these podcasts and they get excited about the physical space that is Oregon. I hope they listen to it and they say, you know what, this weekend I'm going to go to Forest Park and I'm going to check out that spot that Danford Balch used to live at. Or, you know, I, I've never been down to Roseburg. This explosion sounds pretty exciting. I'm going to head down there and check it out. That's that's what I hope, is that people actually get out there and get the boots a little muddy. Well, I think anything that gets uh, Portland-area Oregonians out of the Portland bubble and helps them to uh, see the rest of the state other than Cannon Beach and Bend, 
uh, is a good thing. So when when they're hearing about something that was going on in Roseburg or they're hearing about something that was going on in Shampooey, I think that that's, that's a good thing. That's win-win. And, and you just dissed on all of Multnomah County. What are you doing to our listenership? <laughs> I'm just confirming what they already know. They live in an awesome bubble. Exactly. Well, should we talk a little bit about kind of the the genesis of the idea? Yeah. How did you come up with the idea, Doug? (laughs) Um, Yeah, well, um, I don't know. Oh, well, maybe I did come up with the idea. Well, we had done a Fort Vancouver podcast tour thing uh, because as I'm a graduate student, it seems like every goddamn term I was up at Fort Vancouver learning about Fort Vancouver. So why not do a podcast tour thing? a little bit better than the Park Service did, and so we did that. Welcome to Fort Vancouver, when the Columbia was British, Oregon history's first audio tour production. Today, as you visit this national park site in present-day Vancouver, Washington, this audio track will fill in some of the blanks in the story of Fort Vancouver, providing you with the opportunity of hearing some of the stories of the people whose lives depended on the success of this operation. This tour will focus on the period of British domination of the Columbia, roughly 1825. And you did these awesome, awesome characters from these primary sources I was able to find. Reverend Herbert Beaver recounts the incident by writing that Dr. McLaughlin immediately and without my offering any further cause of irritation came behind me. I still trying to avoid him and inflicted upon me several kicks and blows. I raised a stout walking stick, which I generally carry, to repel the cowardly and brutal attack, but which he, being an exceedingly powerful man, quickly wrenched from my hand and struck me severely with it in the shoulder. And then I, I, I think one night, I don't remember, I was probably stoned, and I came up with this idea that we should do kick-ass Oregon history, and I did a weird little pilot, I think, that had a, a Sabbath, Ronnie James Dio, Children of the Sea song, and then sent it to you, right? And then you went with it elsewhere. Yeah, I, uh, you know, we we set about picking out the kick-assinist tales. And, of course, the first place we started was with the Roseburg Blast, which was news to me. Um, and um, it's fun to listen back to that podcast and for me just to, to listen how primitive it, it was. And yet the kind of the attitude was still there. Yeah, and I think we're going to listen to a clip of that as well, Correct. Yes, yes, indeed. Let's, in fact, let's let's listen to just a little bit of that right now. Parked just a few feet away from the burning building was a truck. A truck loaded with two tons of dynamite and four and a half tons of Carprel, a trade name for a mixture of ammonium nitrate and diesel oil. Compare that with the 1995 bombing of the Alfred P. Murrah Federal Building in Oklahoma City, which used only three tons of ammonium nitrate and no dynamite, and you have a raging fire getting out of hand, a truck packed full of explosives just a few feet away, heat, flame, well, here we go. 
The blast was so powerful that it lifted You know, and one of the things was that that Roseburg blast really kind of gave our little project and our website kind of a give a big hit. And a lot of that goes to uh, Dave Knows PDX, and we need to give him a big thank you. He was really kind of anticipating our project and really was tweeting about it. And it ended up with me being on the Live at 7 KGW st- uh, segment with uh, Stephanie Strickland. And again, this yes. kind of allowed us to, to be exposed to more people. So I need to thank both of those folks. Um, how does this actually happen? Let's talk about that. How does a Kick-Ass Oregon History episode happen? Well... It starts with you, and uh, you pick the topic, and oh, um, I forgot. <laughs> and then, and then to um, I don't know some sort of historian thing. Yeah, uh, yeah. Do you, you, do know, you look in books, books and shit? What books do you do? Shit, uh, some internet searching. I love the uh, microfilm files down at Portland State University. I get old copies of the Oregonian and feed them through that. And I know people say, oh, dude, you can do that on the internet. But it's just fun loading that film in yeah. there. <laughs> Noise. So <laughs> we do that. And I, I write the stories. Um, and then what I really try to do is I try to find characters that you, uh, you know, with your, with your considerable acting ability can draw out kind of life from these old words. I, I know I know some of my favorite characters to do. I'm curious to know as far as either just wow that was a funny voice or storytelling wise are there are there characters that you have um, particularly enjoyed seeing or I guess hearing uh, voiced? Oh, you're uh, Governor McCall. Westerdahl, are you crazy? Are you out of your goddamn mind? And, and and how about you, Andy? Do you have some favorite characters that have popped up uh, over over these episodes? Well, I I really enjoyed uh, Danford Balch, mm. um, and just because in my mind I was I was casting the movie of that with uh, Clint Eastwood as as Balch, and so really my Danford is is my bastardization of what I think. Um, the Clint Eastwood voice is. The night I came home and found the girl gone, it struck a pain in my heart like a knife cutting me. I ate a little supper and went to bed, but did not sleep a wink all night. In the morning, at once after getting up, I started for town, and it seemed as if my stomach would burst from anxiety and grief, which were more than I can express. It kept growing worse and worse on me, for a long time, I don't think I slept an hour a night. While we're on the subject, you know, we've, we've really kind of gone out into the field to solicit input from experts or from folks who might know some about this or, or uh, other guests, we'll say. Um, and who are some of your favorite guests that we've talked to, Andy? Uh, Ronald Glutch from hmm. The Treasure episode he he just seemed to really enjoy talking about it and he gives a nice little kind of chuckle at the end i think where he's talking about oh yeah i really enjoyed this or enjoyed talking about that well that's all the questions i have and i want to thank you very much for talking with us today i, I really appreciate it i enjoyed it excellent it's been thank fun you. to revisit, revisit all this <laughs> thank you Golden 
And he's yeah. fucking so old school Oregon. I mean, we sat in his in his manufactured home out there. I'm not going to reveal where it out was, but it was out in East County. And he chain smoked Pall Malls during the during the entire fucking. <laughs> interview. I got out of the place just reeking. It was just fucking awesome. You just don't see that anymore. So I I loved speaking with him. I personally really enjoyed our interview with uh, Matt Love. Uh, he's one of our favorite historians, and we were sitting on the side of Fremont Street after one of his readings talking vortex and drinking wine while cars were rushing past, which of course you can hear in there. So that was, that was pretty entertaining. They won. Black man's in the White House, women on the Supreme Court, women as governors, doesn't matter if they're Republicans or reactionaries, gay marriage, handicap access. I'm, I'm, we're teaching ESL in the schools that I work at. They won. They won. Now, they ensued or incited a backlash of historic proportions. The whole George Bush thing. All those those fuckers that set out the 60s, like Cheney, Rumsfeld, and Bush, sat on the sidelines in the most dynamic social period of the last 50 years. They were doing blow and drinking and riding it out and not going and fighting and you know dodging the draft. Then they come back 30 years later with a vengeance to undo it all. There was no undoing. They won. Yeah, I thought uh, uh, the interview you did with uh, Portland's mayor uh, oh, was Sam really Adams. good. Yeah, um, I, th- I thought that, one, he had a great attitude about it. He was uh, very well-spoken, as he is. But I just appreciated that here you were not from oh, a known yeah. media outlet— um, and he gave you quite a bit of time, and, and I think we got a really good interview out of it. Yeah, we, we should be very thankful for our accessible mayor. This is Doug Kent Crispin, resident historian of Oregon history, and I'm sitting down with Portland's own kick-ass mayor, Mayor Sam Adams, who has graciously agreed to talk with us today about civil defense. Thank you for joining us, Mr. Mayor. It's my pleasure, and I think that I'll have that kick-ass, you know, part of the official title of the mayor of Portland from now on. Please feel free to bestow it. We give that to you Thank from you. Oregon I'm history. I'm honored. And then, of course, yes. uh, there's Jeffrey Gray, who's the author of Skyjack, The Hunt for D.B. Cooper. I, I enjoyed interviewing him, particularly because I think he was eating a sandwich during the interview. You can, <laughs> you can hear some lip-smacking here and there. And uh, so that's, that, that was a nice little little audio tidbit. Well, I also enjoyed um, Ein Dietrich. She was from the FBI in the D.B. Cooper episodes. She was very uh, judicious and a little prickly, I thought. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And, you know, she's she's a great contact, so we'll leave that at that. <laughs> yes. No, no, no. I, 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 What I appreciated was she was doing exactly what she ought to have done. As she, an FBI she, individual, yeah, yeah. As a as a spokesperson for the FBI, she yeah. she didn't uh, she didn't let you su- make any suggestions that um, were against what the FBI felt. She would always correct you or reshape the question, and I really enjoyed that. It's yeah, a skill. It, absolutely, absolutely. We want to thank Ms. Dietrich again. Absolutely. Is the fact that the case is still open? almost exactly 40 years to the day, 
the only unsolved skyjacking in United States history. Is this a case of Dan Cooper 1, FBI 0? I think your listeners wouldn't keep score as you suggest and instead appreciate the fact that if D.B. Cooper tried to hijack a plane today instead of 40 years ago, he would be thwarted by increased transportation security and by more vigilant fellow passengers on the airplane. We also have more sophisticated capabilities for collecting DNA than we did 40 years ago. So the significant aspect... You know, as we put these things together, uh, there are different forms that have emerged that uh, you could say were the structures of different kinds of of podcasts. But um, there are a few. Uh, it happens first in Danford Balch, where it ends with the historian's sermon. Is a historian... I cry out for resolution. I want to know who Cooper was so we can get to the bottom of this case and stop all this tomfoolery of my crazy old uncle with the big old sideburns from sisters was D.B. Cooper. I want the hard, indisputable facts. To have the info, write the book, collect my royalty check, and bask with my pipe reflecting on other historical ruminations. But as a fan of a good story, which, when you break it down, is all that historians are really good for. As a fan of a good tale, I've got to say, I like the idea of Cooper getting away with the cash, the pocket full of bennies, and grabbing his bottle of bourbon as he headed out the aft stair with some famous Olympic-grade dive, clicked those heels like a stripper, pulled the chute, hit the tree line, and walk on eternally into the mist. And they all lived happily ever after. You know me. You know there's there's one part in one of the DB Cooper episodes where you've got kind of a wonderful edit where you, you have a Who song and DB's jumping out of the plane. Do you want to talk about that? Yes, there are several moments that I've really enjoyed where. There's a story being told on two different levels. There's what the words being spoken, and then there's also the words being sung. And then there's um, that moment in D.B. Cooper. And another one that you pointed out to me in the um, uh, Civil Defense episode, where uh, talking about okay. stockpiles of Soviet yeah. weapons and the song and of the scene. Volga Boatman. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Showed her. I was like, one more. Yeah, one, one more. more. One. Yeah. So I, I really enjoy when those things work out because uh, it's fun to be able to tell the story in a variety of ways with the music. Yep. Let's listen uh, to that DB clip just as an example. Our knowledge of the man known as Dan Cooper is limited to just a few hours. We have no idea where he came from or where he went. It's like a bad, avant-garde, artsy-fartsy film with incredibly poor character development. Dan Cooper emerges on November 24, 1971 at PDX like a specter from the mist. In the end, he is engulfed by that same murky realm when he leaps from the aft stairs of the 727. Just a few hours after the dramatic skyjacking, tribulations developed in the investigation of this for, case. For yep. me, some of some of my favorite moments are are summed up again when the when the music lines up right. There's Bobby the Wonder Dog is a is a mess of an episode, but it's all worth it for me when 
the voiceover ends and the Edie Brickell song, Ghost of a Dog, comes up. And uh, let's listen to that just really quick. Okay. You can visit Bobby's grave at the Society's headquarters at 1067 Northeast Columbia Avenue in Portland. We recommend a respectful visit. And in the spirit of Bobby, why don't you walk there? How can that dog be? Lying under that shaded tree where we buried him years ago. Flying through the backyard. Okay. God damn, love that little collie and every story connected with him. <laughs> so what about I, you? What are do you have favorite episodes, favorite moments? Um, I like the one in Chinatown where I I essentially end up teaching people how to actually smoke opium, uh, which was well not done. my intention. But that's just how you know it's like the internet things where they show you how to make a, a bomb or something like that. I th- I think we can listen to that real quick. Though drug use is often portrayed as glamorous, it was a down and dirty ritual in the opium dens of Portland's Chinatown. Historian Doug Kank Crispin hitting the pipe was a period term used for smoking opium. The opium pipe, or the dream stick, as it was often called, is constructed in such a way as to not burn the opium per se, but to vaporize the substance. A bowl, which looks a lot like a doorknob as opposed to an actual bowl, is attached to a long stem through a metal housing. The stem is usually made from bamboo. A needle is used to place a tiny ball of opium into the bowl. A lamp was used in the process, not as a light source, but as a heat source to vaporize the opium in the bowl. The vaporization happens at a very low temperature, so an oil lamp designed to place just the right amount of heat on a very small surface area was designed. A bunk or a straw mat was often utilized as the effects of the narcotics brought on a state labeled as, quote, opium dreams. Trance-like, nearly hallucinatory visions that resulted during a relaxing, reclining, euphoric state. A wonderful collection of opium paraphernalia and period photographs can be found at www.opiummuseum.com. And so there was that, uh, How to Smoke Opium with Doug Kane Crispin. And uh, and then I really love Vortex. I think Vortex was a great episode, and and we've got a couple clips that we really like from that. I'm not sure which one we're going to play, but listen listen to a hippie clip from Vortex. Oregon gets people stoned. Oregonians are stony people. The mountains and the valleys and the rivers and the lakes and the streams and the high country and the sand dunes and the ocean and the clean air and the pretty towns get Oregonians high. An Oregonian is anybody who wakes up one morning and digs how lucky he is to be waking up here and says, that's it. I'm an Oregonian. We like that. Hence the name, Stony Gonian. Uh, so what's ahead, Andy? What have we got going on? Well, my favorite author uh, is Ken Kesey. My favorite book is sometimes a great notion, um, but the one that most people know from Ken is uh, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. And I understand that um, 
along with uh, our favorite historian, Matt Love, we're going to be, well, you, I'll assemble a podcast. You are going to be putting together an event for next summer. That's right. Uh, September 16th, we're going to be at Mississippi Studios again, and we're going to do a One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest 50th anniversary party about the novel. We're looking at the novel. We want people to read the book. So we're going to be having some sweepstakes and giveaways of that book uh, over the next several months. So people need to stay focused on that. Nice. Um, We have uh, a a good uh, transit night coming up on March 20th at the Jack London with uh, TriMet Diaries, our friends over there, and uh, Dr. Jeff and a couple other folks. We're going to be talking about uh, some of the, the TriMet history. People are going to be telling TriMet stories. We're going to have an open mic night, so that'll be a good good time. Now, are you were you able to secure an interview with someone for, from TriMet for that podcast? Yes, yes. I was able. I have one scheduled. We shall Excellent. If that happens, I, I am hopeful that it will. I, I appreciated their their terms. They seem to to control information even more tightly than the FBI. Uh, they they uh, are. It, I was quite surprised for a public agency. Absolutely. So we're going to sit down and see if we get anything of substance from TriMet. No. <laughs> May eleventh, uh, we're going to have a film event at Fifth Avenue Cinemas uh, at Portland State University. Uh, we're going to be talking about the Park Block riots. We're going to show a student film called The Seventh Day. I think it's a virgin 16 millimeter print. So we're going to pop that cherry and uh, watch that. I'm going to talk. We're going to have uh, Professor Horowitz, who was a witness at the event, speak as well. And we're going to have a groovy sitar player, man. Oh, you got one. Yeah, we've got a groovy sitar player. I think everybody should roll up a joint and come down to that. It's going to be fucking That's That's awesome. Will you you beat some hippies? uh, Chad, Chad, one of our assistants, is absolutely going to be dressed up as a uh, Portland cop. Oh, uh, sweet. Nightstick. Yeah, yeah. So people better... Stay in line and not flash those joints. Chad will fucking pluck you. <laughs> Beat the shit out of you. That's right. And then uh, we've got our big old Bigfoot podcast coming on. Uh, nice. Be probably May, late May, uh, June. Uh, it's going to be kind of a history piece of Bigfoots in Oregon, a bit like the D.B. Cooper piece. And then the ORHistory.com investigative team, which is myself, uh, Chad and Melissa Lang, our intern, are going to go into the field and we're going to have a bunch of beer and we're going to prove definitively the existence or not of Sasquatches. Hopefully we'll be able to do more of these cross-country chat casts. Uh, my hope is that people will ask questions and uh, seek follow-up information or clarification or further proof of the validity of points raised in our historic podcasts. So to do that, we'll need questions from yeah. people. Yeah. So we'll start uh, hashtagging some kick-ass Oregon history uh, questions on the Twitter machine. That's right. And, you know, if people have pictures or if they've gone to some of these sites and they want to tell us a little bit about it, we'll absolutely feature some of that. I know that we had a dude that uh, went on a date, and we're going to be talking about that uh, in an April podcast. So that's, that's going to be pretty awesome. I have no idea what that's about. <laughs> well, you'll find out in April. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Well, Andy, it's been a it's been a really really fun year. I've really enjoyed it. 
Yeah, it's it's been great. I've really enjoyed it, and and uh, I have appreciated the four or five people who continually uh, promote the podcasts on Twitter, and I know that there are many more people who uh, listen and come to the live events, that's and right. that's great. That's great. We appreciate I, I, those ass kickers so much, so yes. fucking very much. We absolutely appreciate them. And we uh, look forward to growing our audience, uh, perhaps not so big that we get cease and desist orders from the people who own the rights to the music that we use, That'd but good... we'll cross that bridge when we get to it. Absolutely, absolutely. Well, thanks a lot, Andy. Yeah, it's, it's my pleasure. Um, let's, uh, let's do an outro. Wonderful. There you have it, one year old. Thank you for listening, Ass Kickers, and be on the lookout for future podcasts by our crew. We hope that you agree that today's episode featured some kick-ass Oregon history. Today's podcast was brought to you by ORHistory.com. It was written by Doug Kank Crispin and Andy Lindbergh. Citations are available on request. Check out our website at ORHistory.com. There, you can subscribe to the podcast and have it delivered through RSS directly to your device. You can also pick up Oregon History merchandise, learn about upcoming Oregon History events, and read of our adventures as Oregon's rock and roll historians. Follow us on Twitter at Oregon underscore history. You can also like us on the Facebook. The email address is OregonHistorian at gmail.com. And remember, coming up on March 20th, 2012 at the Jack London Bar, 7.30 p.m., TriMet Diaries and Kick-Ass Oregon History are proud to co-present Humanity on Wheels, an evening of mass transit tales. Resident historian Doug Kent Crispin, Dr. Jeff, and Well Regan will spin yarns of commuting on TriMet. There'll be an open mic session where you can tell your tales of ecstasy or agony on the number 12 or any bus. Stage set by ORHistory.com's Melissa the Intern. And we want to thank Heather Gogan from Dork Face Media for the kick-ass event flyer. Why don't you come on down and join us? Just be careful where you sit. I honestly have no idea what that sticky stuff is. You stay historic, Oregon. And kick ass. Come on, use weight now. All you gotta do is ask me how. So, amazing Bigfoot died. Amazing Bigfoot died. So, amazing Bigfoot died. So, amazing Bigfoot died. Bigfoot's here. Bigfoot's there. God dang, Bigfoot's everywhere. So hopefully we'll be able to do more of these cock, uh, cock, cock, cock. <laughs> of course, which that then needs to be edited out. Yeah, that'll that'll totally be edited out.